Welcome back to the podcast history of our world. Chapter 70, Legends of the Roman Kings. Romulus stood triumphant in the turf war against his brother Remus. As far as origin stories for civilizations go, fratricide isn't very endearing. That could also be why Romulus welcomed the surviving members of his brother's city with open arms. Sort of a, I'll forget the whole betraying me thing, if you forget I killed my brother. Time to move on from the past, which could sort of be the unofficial motto here. Rome, the past is so yesterday. This desire for a fresh start was central to Romulus's early vision for his city, as he sends word throughout the land, all who wish for a second chance in this life can find it in Rome. Naturally, this attracted folks like runaways, debtors, vagabonds, exiles, and people with dubious criminal pasts. But this just adds to the charming personality of this glorious misfit kingdom. Things started off well, at least, all these new folks pitching in and helping out, yet quickly on Romulus realized something felt very... off. Did Rome always have so many... dudes? While his populous call was meant for everyone, the actual result was a total sausage fest. Not a single woman, young or old, had arrived. Not that they hadn't tried, mind you. It turns out the other Latin cities were so alarmed at the sudden rise of this Brotopia that they refused to let any of their womenfolk leave. Probably a good idea, but for Romulus, this created a pretty substantial dilemma. Rome won't last another generation if there aren't any little Roman bambini running around. Hmm, well if image is the problem here, then a little rebranding might be needed. He'll show everyone that Rome is in some wretched hive of scum and villainy, and it'll be done with a big block party. Well, more festival than party. It's the Consualia, a religious festival to Neptune, god of the oceans, brother of Jupiter, lord of horses. And yes, Neptunalia would definitely make a better name, but that name's been taken for a different festival to Neptune. He's a popular guy, you know. Anyway, Rome would hold the Consualia on a stretch of public land near the Tiber called the Campus Martius. Aside from the religious ceremonies, there would also be games, races, feasts, and a walking tour through the new city led by Romulus himself. What else are you doing this weekend? Come on down, bring the family. Hey, girls drink for free. And yet, no one's biting. Now, if you recall from last time, I listed off some of the other non-Latin Italic tribes in the region. They're even less enthused about Rome's existence than the Latins, although the prospect of free food and outdoors entertainment finally brings in the Sabines, a tribe living northeast along the Apennine Mountains. Why mountain folk felt the need to honor a god of the ocean, who's to say? The day's activities go as planned, and Romulus brings the Sabines through his city, showcasing the craftsmanship of his people, and really driving home how big Rome's walls are. Which they were this time. Since that last bout of wall envy, Romulus had insisted Rome's fortifications dwarf all others, and his followers delivered. The size and grandeur of the walls, with their watchtowers and heavy gates, not to mention the speed with which they were constructed, left the Sabines completely awestruck, and totally unaware of the trap they walked right into. Romulus gave the command, and Roman men burst forth from hiding spots to seize every single woman they could. Battle cries and frightened screams spread panic. The Sabines feared the Romans intended to slaughter them all and fled from the city as fast as they could. It was only until they were at a safe distance that they realized the majority of their women were missing, and those walls which they were admiring so meant no one was getting back in. Romulus' secret plan worked. His city finally had women, even if it meant kidnapping in the first degree. 
He spoke to the terrified captives, assuring them they meant no harm, and apologizing for the ruse and his men's brutish behavior. <laughs> you know how boys can be. But really, girls, don't blame the guys for all of this. Blame your parents. If they'd let you come to Rome in the first place, none of this would have happened. And anyway, me and the boys feel just awful about the whole thing and promise to be sweethearts from here on out. Or, as Livy puts it, The men played their part. They spoke honeyed words and vowed that it was passionate love which had prompted their offense. No plea can better touch a woman's heart. And they say chivalry's dead. Oh wait, it hasn't been invented yet. Well, the Sabine women end up accepting their new lot in life, as wives to their kidnappers. We might be looking at the first recorded incident of Stockholm Syndrome, you know, where it's out of spite that everyone just left them there. Yet enough time passes from what is called the Rape of the Sabines that the women bore children. Rome's first native generation would be half Latin and half Sabine. And speaking of the Latins, some tribes do attack Rome and attempt to free the women. I'm not exactly sure why, although each time Romulus and his troops easily hold them off. Eventually, the Sabine men get their act together to finally bring home the ladies. The walls are overtaken through trickery, there's a bit of karma for you, and the Sabine horse riders flood into the city, taking over the main citadel on the high ground. From there, a cavalry charge pushes the Romans down towards where the Forum is today. With victory apparent, the Sabine general makes a boast. They know now that catching girls is a different matter from fighting against men. Of course, he had no idea Romulus flips out when someone mocks him, and as if possessed by some lupine spirit, he unleashes a blood-curdling scream, his fighters at his back moving directly towards the general. The Sabine is surprised to see the enemy so motivated, but his horse becomes spooked by the charge and tosses him down onto the swampy ground. Keep in mind, stirrups won't appear in Europe until hundreds of years from now. As for this battle, the Romans are inspired by the general's misfortune and rush in to slay him. The Sabine soldiers scramble to his defense and a bloody massacre seems imminent when... Stop! Moans and shrieks fill the air as Sabine women take to the field, wailing and pulling out their hair and gnashing their teeth. The two armies pause as one speaks aloud. We are mothers now. Our children are your sons, your grandsons. Do not put on them the stain of parricide. If our marriage is hateful to you, turn your anger against us. We are the cause of strife. On our account, our husbands and fathers lie wounded or dead, and we would rather die ourselves than live on, either widowed or orphaned. Such a noble thing to say. And totally not an imagined passage written by a guy who lived almost 700 years later. Still, the fighting stopped and a peace was concluded. The Sabines would join their tribe to Rome and overlook the whole mass abduction thing, provided there be an additional Sabine king to rule alongside Romulus. This deal is accepted, although it's not long before there's an accident. While attending a religious sacrifice in Lavinium, the Sabine co-king is swept up in a rioting mob and murdered. No one suspects foul play, even if Romulus is mentioned as feeling less distressed than was strictly proper about all this. Hmm, oh well. Rome was his once again, and even better than before. With double the populace and a promise for more, Romulus feels secure enough to continue with his social planning. After all, Rome is to be a place of laws and civility. Starting after all that previous stuff, which won't be mentioned anymore, okay? Good. 
For starters, the city and its surrounding land are divided up into 30 sections. 10 for private citizens, 10 for the temples, 10 for public land. That should make everyone happy, especially those at the top of the social ladder, the patres, also called the fathers. These 100 men represented the wealthiest and best connected of Romulus's supporters. They're also the ancestors the later patrician class would claim descent from. Now lucky for them, Romulus declares that the patres would be the priests, judges, administrators, and other authority figures of his new society. Now it's not because Romulus thought that they would be the best at the job, but because rather, well, the other social class, the plebeians. Well, they wouldn't want these jobs in the first place. Yeah, and that's because of, as the historian Dionysus puts it, their small means wanting leisure to attend them. Better for those lazy plebs to be the farmers, the shepherds, merchants, and artisans, and the self-sacrificing nobles to take on the heavy burden of leadership. Right. Now, just in case anybody has any crazy ideas about social upheaval, Romulus also created a 300-man bodyguard unit for himself called the Solaris. This might seem unfair, but it also doesn't seem to have hurt Romulus's public opinion rating either. Especially since he kept leading his men to victory after victory when the city was threatened. Two Etruscan settlements, Fidini and Vii, are defeated and their lands added to Rome's. Expansion is already on the minds of the Roman leadership, and Romulus being in his early 50s seems poised for at least another two decades on the throne. But let's go to the year 717 or so. Romulus is out reviewing his soldiers at the Campus Martius, accompanied by his retinue, when a violent thunderstorm appeared, the troops running for cover, every man for themselves. It's at that moment when out of nowhere clouds descend from the sky, swirling around Romulus, and then poof, he's gone. Everyone is dumbfounded to say the least, yet an astute patrician realizes the situation and loudly proclaims before all that their king has been called up to the heavens by Mars. The soldiers rejoice at this news, and once word reaches the city, the citizens immediately start worshipping and giving thanks to their absent god-king. Hooray! Except, come on, that's the best story we can do. No one's questioning why the patricians, who will soon form the Senate of Rome, are the first to report of Romulus's magical disappearing act. Those who have the most to gain from his removal? No. Well, yes. In fact, it was no secret that the patricians had grown disgusted with Romulus's behavior in recent years, as he started to act less as a leading citizen and more like a tyrant. He had taken to wearing a purple toga, giving audience from a reclined throne, and using the Solaris for personal missions unrelated to the benefit of the city. But possibly most reprehensible of all was that the hostages taken from the campaign against VI were subsequently released, without consulting the patricians. Well, that's the last straw, quite frankly, and the rumors spread that those men waited until the right moment during the thunderstorm, when everyone was running for shelter, to stab Romulus to death carve them up, and hide the body parts within their togas. Now, those are the extra-large cargo togas, of course. Since this gross and pernicious lie cannot possibly be allowed to spread, there exists a second part to this whole craziness. It concerns one Julius Proculus, cast in the role of Mary Magdalene, for reasons that will make a lot more sense in a moment. Proculus is described as a reputable man, a trusted close friend of Romulus since their departure from Alba Longa, and, oh yeah, a wealthy noble patrician. 
Uh huh. So one day following all this, he comes running into the forum, that's the heart of the city, and says, A funny thing just happened on my way here. There I was, just walking along, minding my own business, when Romulus comes out of nowhere wearing this really bright armor. I threw myself before him and said, O king, what possessed you to leave us patricians prey to unjust and wicked accusations and the whole city sorrowing without end at the loss of its father? And then Romulus replied, uh, exactly like this, It was the pleasure of the gods from whom I came, O Proculus. I should be with mankind only a short while, and then after founding a city destined to be the greatest on earth for empire and glory, I should dwell again in heaven. So farewell, and tell the Romans that if they practice self-restraint and add to it valor, they will reach the utmost heights of human power. P.S. Proculus was always my favorite, and I leave my stereo to him. Mm-hmm, that's what he said. Perhaps people were more gullible back then. Well, they bought it. The patricians rule in a type of early senate with the people's blessings. 150 of them one getting to be chief magistrate, and all the while pretending not to be a king, but really having a king's power. Meanwhile, the Sabines, the other ethnic half of the city, are legitimately fed up. They kept calm when their co-king was curiously struck down. Now, not only are they still without a king, but without a voice in this new oligarchy. Well, that tears it. If Rome doesn't get a Sabine king, then the friendship is over. The patricians wisely agree that it's better to keep the Sabines than divide the city, and they seek an audience with one whom they consider the best man for the job, Numa Pompilius. Born on April 21st, 753 BC, hey, wait, that's the same date as the founding of Rome. What are the odds? Right, well, Numa is described as a stoic sort of person, one who was made even more so upon the death of his wife, the daughter of that Sabine co-king. He's a no-nonsense, rational kind of guy who prefers reason to emotion. He's the Spock to Romulus's Kirk, which is exactly why the patricians ask him to be their king. Surely he could convince the people to stop accusing them and go back to worshipping Romulus as a god. Numa's response is to first reject them, saying, I should but be, methinks, a laughingstock, while I should go about to inculcate the worship of the gods and give lessons in the love of justice and the abhorrence of violence and war to a city whose needs are rather for a captain than a king. But in the end, it's his dad who convinces him to take the job. Instead of sitting there criticizing and judging the Romans, why don't you show them how to behave? And so he did. Numa first made peace with Rome's neighbors, reasoning that the citizens wouldn't be receptive to his words if they were off fighting. On top of this, he built the Temple of Janus, whose doors were famously kept open while at war and closed when at peace. Throughout all Roman history, they don't stay closed for very long. But it's a nice touch. Numa also ramped up the religious aspects of Roman life, creating numerous holidays, establishing priestly rites, calendars, and the office of Pontifex Maximus a position still held to this day. In fact, he kept the Romans so busy keeping up with all the various religious responsibilities he had invented, uh, I mean, given this divine insight from the Nymphigeria, that the Romans had no time for war. How could you when you gotta worship so many gods and goddesses? Ops, Cloacina, Silvanus, Juventus, Priapus, and the list goes on and on, but it worked. Romans began considering how their actions affect the heavens and the earth. And when Numa dies in 673, Rome had finally learned the value of peace. Yeah, but for about five seconds. 
Tullus Hostilius is voted in as king, and is all super itchy to fight someone. Anyone. The priests might not like wanton aggression anymore, but even they'd agree Rome needs to defend herself against those who would do her harm. He just needs a reason for war, a casus belli. And he got one from an unexpected source. Alba Longa, ancient city of the Latins, which once welcomed Aeneas to Italy, had found itself next-door neighbors with Rome. In spite of their shared bloodline, the two cities engaged in a series of border raids until Tullus orchestrated a way for Alba Longa to refuse peace, which meant Rome could go to war. The first battle was an attempt by Metius, the Alba Longan king, to avoid bloodshed. Each side would choose three fighters, and whichever side wins submits to the other. Great, except Rome is the winner, and Metius has to bear the jeers and insults his people hurl at him for risking everything on three men. He can't handle the emotional strain, and seeks a way to avenge his conquered city. His chosen plan is to foment rebellion in the two Etruscan settlements Romulus had once conquered, and let them do the heavy lifting first. Their armies march on Rome, and Tullus brings his troops alongside Metius's. He's there to play along, after all. But when it's time to charge, Metius turns the other way. Smart thinking, because Rome surely can't handle the combined might of both of those armies at once, except, oh wait, they just did. And Metius has the further gall to congratulate Tullus on his victory. While the Roman king just smiles politely and says to the Alba Longan troops that their king is a coward and a traitor who will be made example of soon. As for the rest of them, however... My purpose, men of Alba, is to transfer to Rome the entire population of your city. Your commons shall have Roman citizenship, your nobles the right to be elected senators. We shall be one city, one commonwealth. Long ago the Alban people split into two. Let them now be reunited. And then he tied Medius's limbs between two chariots and had the horses split him in twain. Gruesome. Punishment for something about how he couldn't decide between Rome or Alba Longa. Yeah, and as for the citizens of that city, they are all gently marched back to Rome, whereupon their city is destroyed. Everything, save the temples, was reduced to rubble. Tullus dies in a house fire in 642 BC, possibly after a botched religious ceremony to Jupiter. His successor, Ansus Marcius, was grandson to Numa Pompilius, but chose glory in battle over books. More Latin towns are conquered under him, and the city of Rome must expand further and further to accommodate these new citizens, even building across from the Tiber. The hills of Rome now housed various groups of newcomers, not just refugees or displaced Latins, but others looking to capitalize on the growing success here. A case in point, a noble Etruscan woman named Tanaquil and her half-Etruscan husband, Lucumo. She couldn't stand how her husband was treated back home, what with him not being full-blooded, and decided to leave with him and their possessions to start over in Rome. Now weirdly enough, while sitting in their carriage on a road near the city limits, an eagle swooped in and snatched Lucumo's hat off his head. Something that random has to be auspicious, of course, but even crazier, the eagle returned a minute later and put the hat back on his head. Tanaquil is just beside herself with joy at this, as the Romans aren't the only bird-crazy folks in town, and predicts that only great and glorious things will happen to her husband and their new home city. As to what they are, we'll have to wait for the next time on the podcast history of our world. <laughs>